Now today for Grace Life, we're starting a new series because it's the beginning of the year and it's to remind us why we are here. I better start the clock. Keep me on track here. Why we are here. We have a saying every week that we, that we remind ourselves uh, that we are the church where the insiders exist. For whom? For the outsiders, right? And we say a charge at the end of every service that you have been sent. We are witnesses. And so all of this is to remind us why we're here, that we are missionaries. We are the insiders that God has put here, saved, redeemed, and left here to go to the outsiders and deliver that same transforming message to them. But here's the issue. It doesn't take very long um, for any organization, but this is true of churches as well, as well, maybe especially churches, to forget their mission. For something that threatens every church, it's called mission drift to take place. Now look, we planted this church and it's the first two or three years of your existence, it's you better evangelize, you're going to die, dude. You better get out there and, and uh, share the gospel with people and invite people to come in or you're not going to make it. You're not going to survive. But then years two, three, four, and more people come, more people join, and we start to get comfortable and we start to drift from our mission. It happens really easily, really quickly, very subtly. Just like, have you ever been driving down the interstate? If you're like me, when we go to Arkansas at Christmas and you're on I-95 and you're driving the speed limit and you're kind of paying attention, but then you start to talk with your spouse and you look up and dude, you're not on I-95 anymore. <laughs> you're on some numeric road you've never heard of, but people are still moving. You're still driving. You're still making progress. You're going somewhere, but you just deviated. It wasn't just this hard yank jerk of the wheel and you're off in no man's land. No, it was very subtle and you're off mission. You have drifted from your mission. I think I've told you this. How many people know about the YMCA? Not the song. It's fun to sing. Okay. Not that. The actual organization. Do you know why it started out? You know what their mission was? You know who they were targeting? Young. That's right. Young, male, Christian. Uh, was it athletes or association? I can't remember. But have you been to the YMCA lately? And look, I'm not against what they're doing. I think it's awesome. But here was their mission, and here's where they're at today. I mean, the last time I went, there wasn't very many young people, which that's fine. Um, I don't know how many people in there were Christian, but based on the music that was planned, maybe not very many, I don't know. Um, anyway, you get the point. It's really easy to drift from your mission and for the tail to wag the dog instead of the dog wagging the tail. And I don't want that to happen to this church. I don't want it to happen to any church. And so this message is not corrective, it's preventative, okay? This is just to remind us the beginning of the year, year three, why we're here. We are here to live on mission. And this series is four messages long, and we're going to be talking about some key things, and I hope you can all make it or that you can go to the website. We'll post these sermons as they're preached, hopefully by Wednesday, and you can join in from wherever you're at. Um, but mission is important, and God did not uh, create a mission for His church. God formed a church for His mission. It's always been God's desire to reach the people's of the world everywhere, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every skin color, everybody. And so the church is here, we exist, that's our mission, and we don't want to deviate from it, we don't want to drift. There's a pastor and an author named David Platt. He wrote a book called Radical that kind of put him on the um, Christian evangelical map, and he wrote about an experience that he had when he was writing that book, and I want to recount that today. 
It was an experience he had when he was visiting an American church that he had been invited to preach at. You know, you write a book, it sells a lot of copies, everybody in the world wants to invite you to their church to speak and preach, and that was the case with David. So his story began on the Saturday night before the service. He went to the pastor's house, and some of the deacons and some of the other leaders in that church had gathered there, and they wanted him to share about Uh, his mission in the city because he's a guy that believes that you are radical for Jesus. You're all out. You go to the hard to reach places. You do the hard things that are difficult to do that not many Christians are willing to do. Uh, This church had shown him extraordinary kindness. They had prayed for him. They had encouraged him in his work. They had sent him unsolicited financial assistance in the past. So he was really happy to be there and thought it was a kindred spirit. And uh, so they sat around the den, and he shared news of his inner city ministry in New Orleans, where he and his wife were living. He told them about uh, the ministry that they had and the housing projects riddled with poverty and gang violence, and they were listening. They were gripped by what he was saying. He told them about his ministry among the homeless men and women, who many are in the throes of addictions and abuse. He told them about the ministry opportunities that God had really entrusted to him all the way around the world. He told them about people's receptivity to the gospel and hard-to-reach places that are traditionally hostile to the Christian message. And he told them that whether the inner city or overseas, God was drawing people to himself in some of the toughest areas in the world. And this was the response. And I'm going to quote David because this is so unbelievable, you'll think I'm embellishing it if I just say it. I'm going to quote him. This was the response. David writes, After an awkward silence... One of the deacons leaned forward in his chair, looked at me in the eyes, and said this, David, I think it's great you are going to those places, but if you ask me, I would just as soon God annihilate all those people and send them to hell. Wow. Talk about a Jonah complex. But it got worse. Listen to this. You think, how how did a church get to that place? The next morning after David preached at the service of that church on all the nations going to the ends of the earth with the, with the gospel message. That was his sermon. He walked down to the front while the pastor got up to close the service. And this is what the pastor said, and I quote, Brother David, we are so excited about what God is doing in New Orleans and in all the nations, and we are excited that you are serving there. And brother, we promise that we will continue to send you a check so that we don't have to go there ourselves. Now, what in the world would would cause a Christian to adopt and harbor that kind of attitude toward the Great Commission and toward unbelievers? What in the world would cause that? Ask yourself that question. Now maybe, maybe, that's a story that's so um, over the top that you think, well goodness, I've never... But be careful. Let's, be, let's not be proud. Let's be humble. And let's be receptive to what God's going to show us this morning. Maybe we don't express it in, in, to that extreme, but I think banging around down in our hearts and in our minds, that, that resentment can rise to the surface toward unbelievers sometimes. And here's what causes it. A toxic perspective. The wrong perspective. The wrong perspective about the Great Commission. The wrong perspective about our mission. The wrong perspective about unbelievers, the mission field, the wrong perspective about the message that we share, that we carry, and really the wrong perspective about ourselves, how we are to relate to unbelievers. Those people view themselves, their message, and their audience the wrong way. 
And so I'm here to give you the right perspective. You say, well, that's, that's quite audacious of you, Pastor. Uh, who are you to tell us? Well, look, it's not my perspective. It's God's perspective. It comes from the Bible, so I know it's the right one. Amen? God created us. This is His church. This is His mission. And so God has the right to, to give us the perspective that we're supposed to have. So what do I mean by perspective, first of all? Let's make sure we're all using the same dictionaries. Perspective just means the lens through which you view things. It's, it, it's a view. It's your perception, really. There's a Latin root to that word, and it means to look through. We all have this lens through which we view reality. We view the message through this lens that we carry, the gospel. We view unbelievers through this lens, and we view ourselves through these lenses. And God is going to tell us how we're supposed to see them, the point of view we're supposed to have, the attitude we're supposed to have. So look with me again at Romans chapter 1 that uh, my brother Kyle read. And let's look at this together because we're going to have, uh, we're going to have three points uh, first of all, let me just give you an idea about what perspective is and, and how it can change. Can you guys all see that? Now, one person's on a deserted island and there's a boat coming, and he's really excited about the boat, right? That's his perspective. A boat, yay, rescue. But if you're looking from the perspective of the boat, this person's been adrift at sea for many days now, and he's parched and he's lonely, and he sees land. So look at the perspective, how it changes in both cases. That's kind of what I mean whenever I talk about the word perspective. So what are the perspectives we're supposed to have when it comes to ourselves, our message, and our audience? Romans chapter 1, and the very first verse that Kyle read says this. This is the Apostle Paul. This is a letter he's writing to a church uh, that was in existence in Rome that he was trying to come and visit. And he says this, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So this is perspective number one. You must view yourself as under divine obligation. Under divine obligation. Let's put the slide up again so you can see these are going to be our points this morning. Perspectives. Perspective number one, how we view our lives. We're, we are under divine obligation. Perspective number two, how do we view our message under divine power? And perspective number three, how do we view our audience under divine wrath? And you can see with the next slide, all three of those are in the text. Do you see that? I'm under obligation. That's the first point. The gospel is under the power of God. That's the second point. And the third point is our audience is under the wrath of God. So let's look at point one together. You must view yourself as under divine obligation. What do I mean by that? Paul gives himself this really peculiar title that a lot of people would chafe at. I mean, do you like to refer to yourself as a debtor? <laughs> I certainly don't. I don't want to be under obligation to anybody. My wife will tell you, and I'll give you a little secret, how messed up your pastor is. Do you know why I usually don't ask people for help? Terry, you hate this about me, don't you? You know why I don't ask people to help me do things? When I need help in my yard, when I need help re-roofing my house. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? I'm always thinking, now, well, now hang on a minute, time out. If I ask this person to help me, and they help me, somehow in the back of my mind I'm thinking, I owe them. And I know, I'm, I'm messed up. I confess to you, that's a very sinful attitude to have, and I'm working on it. God's working on my heart. That's, a, that's a, a prideful way to think about things. But the Apostle Paul says, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to living on mission as a Christian, a blood-bought child of God, that's exactly how you should view yourself, as under obligation, a debtor. A debtor, what does that mean? In what sense is Paul a debtor, and in what sense are we? Well, the Apostle Paul certainly is not talking about money because Paul didn't, 
He didn't run up debts in any place that he went, right? He lived on a very tight budget. He was bivocational. He didn't owe anybody any money anywhere that he went. We also know that he's certainly not talking about he's a debtor to God, that he has to pay God back for what he did. Because who has paid the ultimate debt for our sins? Jesus has. We don't owe God in the sense that we're paying him back. Um, That may be every religion in the world besides Christianity, that you're somehow paying God off until you've done enough. No, Christianity says it's done, it's finished. Um, So what does he mean? He means this. God has given us something that we are obligated to pay to other people. And in that sense, we are indebted to them. And man, I will tell you right now, that perspective can change your life when it comes to living on, on mission. Because so often, we, we switch that. We actually view unbelievers and we think, you know what? They owe us. They owe us. We want to put demands on unbelievers, live a certain way, think a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way, adjust your behavior a little bit because this is really annoying, this is really inconveniencing me, the immodesty, uh, the foul mouth, your worldview bothers me, and we want them to change. So we think they're indebted to us to pay us somehow. If you think about it deeply enough, you'll see that that germ, that root in our mind sometimes comes to fruition. So we're always annoyed at unbelievers and just want them to go away. We might not say it the way that pastor did or that deacon that night. I would just as soon God annihilate them and send them all to hell. Um, We might not say it that way, but in our mind somewhere we harbor resentment. We don't consider ourselves to be obligated to them at all in any sense. Rather, we tolerate them. We'll just tolerate them until God comes, uh, kill them all, let God sort them out kind of mentality, right? No, Paul says we are obligated to share the gospel with people. We are indebted to them. David Platt in that same book said this, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. That's good, isn't it? Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. Or like Spurgeon said, if somebody's going to go to hell, they're going to have to step over my body to get there. Man, I love the way Spurgeon talked about that. That's the right way to view yourselves. It's like, I'm going to do everything within my power, every resource that I have, every ounce of energy, I'm going to apply it to this mission that God has entrusted to me because I view myself as a debtor. I'm obligated to the centers that God has put in my sphere of influence that my life intersects with. And that's a powerful word. God has called us to share the gospel. He has empowered us. He's commanded us. And so we're obligated to do it. We're debtors. That's a powerful truth. And we're secure. You know, it's kind of like in the airplane when they tell you when the oxygen mask drops, put it on who first? Yourself, right? We're secure. We're in Christ. So now we've got the other oxygen mask the gospel, and we got to find some people that are suffocating in their sin to give it to them. That's the idea. The Bible also says that we are ambassadors. Do you guys know what a rich word picture that is? You know what an ambassador does? You know what an ambassador is? He is a representative of a powerful king, a monarch, or a ruler, and he has this official message that God has entrusted to him, or this king, excuse me, has entrusted to him and sent him to deliver it to villages and hamlets and cities and towns. And an ambassador is always an ambassador. There's never a time when an ambassador doesn't represent the king. And the Bible says that we are ambassadors for Christ. There's never a time, there's never a scenario, there's never a place that we don't represent Christ, ever. In our homes, in our jobs, at school, at work, in the community, at the grocery store, at the concert, wherever it is, whatever we're doing, we're ambassadors. Now listen, 
an ambassador that has an important message from the king, but he refuses to give it to the people that need to hear it. What would you think of him? Irresponsible? Derelict in his duty? Um, Deceptive, maybe? Criminal? A mute ambassador is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. And listen, Paul says this. I want to make, this is a good opportunity for me to address this. Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to, and what's that word? Verse 15, preach. Now look, I know we're not apostles. I'm not an apostle. I can't raise people from the dead. I didn't write inspired parts of the New Testament. Um, In that sense, I'm not an apostle. I'm not the apostle Paul either, okay? I don't have his unique skill set and giftedness. Uh, But the word apostle, do you know what it actually means? It means sent in Greek. That's all the word means, sent. And the Bible says that you and I, were all, we have been sent. And what's Paul say that he's going to do? He's going to preach. So here's what I'm after. We are sent with a message. I have heard a quote that's popular, and to be honest, I probably said it out of context. But it goes something like this. I think they've traced it back to St. Francis of Assisi or something like that. It says this, preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. Now, I've heard that clever little quote used before, and I know what they mean when they say it. It means live your life in such a way that you give credible credible testimony to the gospel. I mean, if you're saying you've been transformed by God, um, but your life displays something else, that's what the quote is after. But the quote's worthless, to be honest with you, because um, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. That's like saying do math at all times, use numbers when necessary. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, if you live your entire life living upstanding, being above reproach, not telling lies, uh, not giving a bad name to the, to, to the Christian evangelical faith, but you never open it ever to share the love of God in Christ Jesus or that God commands all men and women everywhere to repent, you're not being a faithful ambassador. Does that make sense? That's what we've been entrusted with. We pay this debt by sharing verbally, sharing truth with people who don't yet know it, who have not yet encountered it. And I know that, and maybe I'll get to this in this series at some point, some people seem to have an extraordinary gift of evangelism. I mean, they never meet a stranger, they have the gift of gab, they never have awkwardness, or or they're not socially timid, do you know what I mean? I know people like that, I'm not one of them. Just because I'm up here speaking doesn't mean when I meet an unbeliever and the time comes for me to share, I mean, I'm stammering, I'm I'm stuttering too sometimes, I, I mean, I had that struggle. But I've met people, they never miss a beat, and, and I, I thank God for that gift. I'm envious of it. You know, there's a difference between envy and jealousy. Jealousy is somebody has something that you want, and you don't want them to have it. I'm not jealous of that gift, I'm envious of it. Envy is they have it, and you want it too, and they can keep it too, you know? I'm envious of people like that. Jeff's one of those people. I envy that gift in Jeff. That gift in Jeff. Um, So I'm not saying we all have to, you know, we're in the grocery store and it's just so natural for us to strike up a conversation about the gospel. That's not what I'm saying and that's not what Paul's saying. It's saying just remember the way that you're supposed to relate to unbelievers. You should see yourself as indebted to them because God has given you something that belongs to them and they need it and you need to pay it to them. You need to find a way in the will of God to get that payment to them. Now, Whenever somebody, uh, whenever you've owed somebody money and they come around, it's kind of awkward, isn't it? I can remember when Sarah and I lived in Ormond Beach, I house sat for a family. Um, and I don't know why, this is just me being dumb. I was 
you know, 28 when I got married and was still figuring things out. And we didn't have kids yet. And we stayed with his family. And I needed a belt for some reason. So I thought, we're sleeping in their bedroom. I'm just going to go in his closet and get a belt. So I went in the bedroom and I got a belt. And man, I liked it. It fit perfect. Um, and I kind of forgot about it, but I kind of didn't. And I saw that guy at church and I told his family, I'm like, look, man, I feel like I need to tell you this. I borrowed a belt when we were at your house and they like looked at each other like, that's where that belt went. And I said, I'm really sorry. I got it at home and I'll bring it on, you know, this church had services Wednesday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I said, I'll bring it to you. Well, I'm forgetful. And I kept forgotten. I kept forgetting that thing, but I would see them at church. <laughs> and you know, every time I would see them, I'm telling you, this was a bigger church. It'd be like, you ever do that? You ever, you ever feel that way when you owe somebody something and you don't have it and you see them? It's awkward. Or, or look, maybe it's the landlord. I don't know. We all, we all have our own examples, right? It's just awkward. It's strange. It's a little embarrassing. Uh, and the further along it goes, you start to get angry. You're annoyed by them. It's like, dang, they're here again. It's like, well, they're not there for you. If you would pay them, they'd go away or they would, you know, the relationship would be mended. But listen, how foolish how silly, how ludicrous would it be if you always had the payment that you owed that person and you still ignored them, or you still resented them, or you still, you know, turned away and went the other way? And so often that's what we do. Because preaching the gospel is hard, isn't it? It's a scandalous message. It's awkward a little bit. We feel that shame a little bit. Paul mentions that here. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For him to even say that tells you that there's a stigma attached to this message. It was a shameful thing to preach a crucified Redeemer. You know, we have a God, and he came down here, and he was born in a stable, uh, and he was crucified like a criminal between two thieves outside the city, and the whole religion of Judaism seemed to reject him, and, and he's our Savior, and we trust in him alone. That was a shameful thing, especially in the first century. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. I owe that to unbelievers, and I'm going to make good... Uh, on my payment. And you know, who are, so who are we indebted to? Well, look at, look at what this says here. It says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. So to whom are you obligated? Everybody. Everybody. Educated, uneducated, sophisticated, unsophisticated, cultured, refined, wealthy, unwealthy, black, white, yellow, brown, doesn't matter. That's what Paul's after here. Everybody. We're obligated to everybody to preach the gospel to them. I remember there was a movement when I first, we first planted this church. I would go to conferences and they was talking about they were talking about everybody's moving into the inner city, man. That's where the greatest uh, that's where the greatest opportunities exist for the gospel witness to just blow up. All these uh, you know, there's homeless people there. It's riddled with crime and problems and at risk kids. And so everybody that lived in the suburbs or on the outskirts would move into the inner city and preach the gospel. And that's an amazing thing. That's a powerful thing. But there's one problem with that. What is it? What about the people in the suburbs? <laughs> now that we have, sometimes we have a hard time with this. There's a big argument still in Christianity today. People are arguing about that. What would Paul say? He would say, if everybody leaves, who's going to preach the gospel to them? It doesn't matter if you're in the inner city or the outer city. If you have a three-bedroom, two-bath, or if you have a lean-to shelter on Skid Row, Paul would say, you're obligated to all those people. And listen, all of us intersect with those kinds of people um, at various stages in our life, our neighborhoods, where we work, where we shop, where we get our entertainment. And Paul says, 
You're a debtor to them. Whoever it is, wherever they're at, whatever stage of life they're in, you're the debtor. God's given you the money of the gospel to pay them with. Not only that, Paul says he's eager. Look at this. I'm under obligation, both the Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, so I am eager. He was eager to make good on his debt. That's a really powerful picture. So the Apostle Paul, he was a man that could just as easily preach the gospel to a runaway slave, Onesimus, or a King Agrippa, or Felix the governor in Rome, or the Stoics, the Epicureans, the slaves in Caesar's household. Paul really meant what he said here. He considered himself a debtor. And man, I want that perspective. I want that. I don't want to see an unbeliever and just be annoyed. Or see a, a coexist sticker and think, you know, if they pull in the same parking lot, you know, I'm not even going to give them the time of day. Or see the immodest clothing. Or see a party line bumper sticker that annoys you. I mean, Paul wouldn't see, he wouldn't see Democrat or Republican. He would just see past all these, those things and see a person created as an image-bearing creature of God, fallen in Adam, ruined in sin, and in desperate need of the life-saving power of the gospel message. That's how Paul viewed unbelievers. He wasn't irritated by them and annoyed by them. In fact, to be honest with you, man, every time I say this, I feel Paul was more annoyed by the religious people that tried to hinder him in his, in his mission. <laughs> Those are the people that bothered Paul. It wasn't the sinners he was going to, to... Uh, to preach the gospel, it was the other sinners that got in the way of it and thought they were on God's team. And we still have that mindset today. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, if a preacher cannot preach his gospel to everybody, I doubt very seriously whether he can preach it to anybody. Well, that hits me. If he must have a certain type of congregation to that extent, he is unlike the Apostle Paul. A preacher does not need to presuppose anything in his congregation except their need of God and of Christ. Man, that's good. Let me say that again. A preacher or a witness, a missionary, you don't need to presuppose anything about your audience other than their need of God. That means political stuff, throw it out the window. Cultural stuff, throw it out the window. I mean, if you're able to connect with somebody through something in culture, sure. But don't view them as a red or a blue or a black or a white or a criminal or a non-criminal, religious, irreligious, view them as a sinner that's in desperate need of a, of a message God's entrusted to you that you owe them. That's what Paul said. I've got a C.S. Lewis quote, and I hope you can read it. We'll put it up there. Can you guys see that? I can't read this far to see it back there. I'm going to have to turn around here. I'll put it in bigger font next time. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load, C.S. Lewis says, or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. And then he says this, check this out. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. Isn't that incredible? The most uninteresting person you could meet on the street will one day be a creature that if you saw him in his glorified state now, you'd be tempted to fall down and worship, or if you saw him or her, uh, eternally separated from God in hell, 
it, it, the hair would bristle on the back of your head. And Lewis says, every, he's saying every encounter is important. There's no, there's no dull moments. That's incredible. So if you can't preach the gospel to, to everybody, then you probably can't preach it to anybody. I remember the church that ordained me in Ormond Beach, um, they did something very wise that I commend them for because I was a young man and I had expressed an interest in gospel ministry and they were going to ordain me. You know what one of the first things they did to me? They said, okay, here's the job we got for you, young man. There is a senior retirement uh, village down the street here and we want you to commit to going there every Sunday afternoon and preaching the gospel every Sunday for, I think, a year and a half. And you know what? I'm not commending myself, but I was so hungry to preach the gospel. I didn't care. I would have went to a graveyard and preached it to the, to the tombs if somebody would have let me. So every Sunday I went, and you know what? I cultivated a relationship with some of those people there. And man, I loved it. Whenever I had to leave, I missed those people. But you know why that church did that? Because they, you know, the church I went to back then was big, and of course... You know, that I would look up and see the preacher up there and see everybody, amen, hallelujah, taking notes, writing down things the guy would say. Who wouldn't want that? And it was just, it was kind of a test, but also there was a need for the gospel to be preached there. And they wanted, if this guy will go and preach to the senior retirement village, then maybe, maybe we'll invest in him. And that was a wise thing for them to do. And they still do that. So what thought grips your heart when you see a sinner? And somebody that you wouldn't be friends with at the lunchroom table in, in high school. Is it disgust? Are you annoyed? If it's somebody that's on the far left and you're on the far right, are you thinking tree hugger, environmentalist? Or if it's somebody on the far right and, and that kind of thing annoys you, are you, man, you right wing, what in the world? No, Paul says, consider yourself a debtor. View them as people in desperate need, not liberals or conservatives, not Democrats, Republicans, not perverts or freaks, just sinners that need a message that you have. And we share it with them. Remember who Jesus spent the most time with. It was the irreligious people, the tax collectors, the harlots, the social outcasts, the rejects. Unbelievers are creatures made in God's image and they're fallen in Adam and they need our help. You know, Paul said at another place, he considered himself a servant to all. He used the word slave. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 9. He said, I have made myself a slave to all. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To them that are under the law, as under the law. To them that are without law, as without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Man, that's a great perspective. So we're supposed to serve them. We're indebted to them. So what do we serve them? Just donuts and coffee? Do we just massage their feet? Do we just cook them dinner, bring them meals, give them a hot bed to sleep in? No. I mean, yeah, do those things, certainly. But that's not really what Paul's after here. What is he after? Well, that's point number two. Here's the second point. We view ourselves as under divine obligation. God has put us under obligation. We're indebted to them. Second point, we view them Excuse me, we view the gospel as under divine power. Look at verse 16 and 17. Paul goes on to say, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what is Paul saying about this message? How does he view it? 
And I would ask you this question. Man, this is the most important part of this message probably. How do you view this currency that God has given you to pay sinners? What kind of, what kind of money are we talking about here? Is it worth anything? Can it do anything? I mean, if I'm going to go to the lengths to share something with people that's outrageously offensive, has a stigma attached to it, it's going to make it awkward, I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to have to stoop and bend and contort myself and inconvenience myself, this thing better be powerful. And Paul says, oh, it is. The gospel is power. How powerful is it, right? It's powerful. How powerful is it, Paul? It has divine power. In fact, there's only two things in the entire Bible that are said to have power, this kind of power, Jesus and the gospel. So no matter what else you're doing to unbelievers, if it doesn't involve some kind of gospel publication, some kind of sharing of the message about what Christ has done for sinners, it's impotent. And I say that as strongly as I can and emphasize it. It is without power. You may show them the kindness of God, the love of Christ. You may uh, do damage control on a, a, a... a distorted view they have of Christians and Christianity that we're cruel and that we're intolerant and that we don't give them the time of day. But if the gospel is not involved at some level, then there's no power there at all. That's what Paul's saying. That's what I'm saying. So you have to view this message. It's under divine power. God has stamped power on this message and infused it with power. And it's an amazing thing to consider that. There's only two kinds of religions in the world. The first kind of religion promotes human effort. Human effort, do, strive, work, sweat, labor, work hard. It's like the little engine, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's every religion in the world except Christianity. That the only way for you to get forgiveness and acceptance by God is for you to do something, to try harder to do something, to gain something, to merit and earn something. And you wonder for the rest of your life whether or not what you offered to God with your effort was enough. And I can tell you, it wasn't. It won't be. It never can be. Because Christianity is not designed on your labor, your sweat, your efforts. That's human effort. That's every other religion in the world. And here's Christianity. It celebrates divine accomplishment. There's human effort, and then there's divine accomplishment. This is Christianity. This is, it is finished, it's done, it's paid in full. You don't even leave the tip, right? That's Christianity. This is every other religion in the world. You've got to get enlightened. You've got to follow these pillars. You've got to make this pilgrimage. And I'm not, I'm not being um, disrespectful to those other religions. That's what they would tell you. That's in their literature. You've got to do this, go here, do this, this many times a day. And then maybe, maybe it's enough to appease whatever god or goddess is represented in that religion. You may not ever know until the very end. So there's no assurance. Is there any power in that? No. I mean, there's a power to guilt people. There's a power that can make men or women strap bombs to their body and fly an airplane into a building, but that's not the kind of power that Paul's talking about there. That's destructive power. He's not talking about destructive power. In fact, let me be honest with you, because I'm a man, and I see a lot of men out here. When we think about power, guys, what do we think about? Just blow stuff up, right? Man, that was powerful. Did you see what that gun could do? Did you see how... And I, and I love guns. This is not a political statement, okay? I have guns. I love guns. When they're used properly, okay? Um, but we, we're like, man, we can blow stuff up. July the 4th, firecrackers, it's horsepower, voltage, electricity. We think in terms of destruction. That was a powerful bomb, says Charles. Why? Because it blew up an entire city. Um, or that was a powerful bottle rocket. Did you see how far it went? 
That's not the kind of power that this is talking about. In fact, I had a Greek professor, and he told us, he said, when I get old and I come into your church and I hear you preaching and you preach from this passage right here and you tell your people rightly that the Greek word here for power is dunamis and you tell your people that that's the same word that we get dynamite from and the gospel is that kind of power. It blows stuff up. He said, I'm going to roll my wheelchair down there and whack you on the leg with my cane. He said, because that is not the kind of power this is. He said, the word dunamis Yeah, we get dynamite in English from it, but we also get dynamic. And this power is not something that blows things up, okay? It's it's the power that puts things back together. And, and, And understand what I mean by that. The gospel will put your life back together. Anybody, anything can blow your life up. Don't we have enough things that destroy lives? The gospel is the only thing that can put it back together again. And that's why... I was telling you one week that when Jesus went around doing miracles, those were like trailers. They were previews, man, of what the kingdom was going to be like. Jesus would go and restore a person's skin that was completely covered in leprosy. Jesus would go and heal somebody from a deadly disease or from a 12-year blood flow issue. Or he would raise somebody from the dead. And why was Jesus doing those things? To, To relieve human suffering, yes, but to show that this is the same kind of power that this message about the kingdom wields that I'm preaching to you. It restores things. It's a restorative power. It puts people's lives back together. It mends their heart. And I would ask you, what kind of power do you know of that can totally transform a person's heart? Only the gospel can do that. And I know we have these little cliches and, you know, I'm, I'm one of the board members of B&B Counseling and we meet people all the time, all the time. Um, and one of the, in fact, forget, forget that illustration. Most people that, that come in for marital counseling, you know what one of the things they say is? They would say that they're having trouble communicating. Hey, I've said that before. And that's true. Communication is important. The way that you express what is in your heart to a person you care deeply about can really hurt them, right? There's a tremendous amount of power in words. The Bible affirms that. But I would also say this. Communication problem typically is a surface level problem and it indicates something uh, a lot more profound and deep that needs to be dealt with. Because the Bible also says this, out of the heart flow the issues of life, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're communicating what is already down in your heart that's all jacked up and messed up and you just change the way you say it, is there any power in that really? There's some restraint, there's some discipline and self-control, but I would say no, the heart needs to be changed. You need heart work, and what does work in the heart? The gospel does. Let me illustrate this again. When Sarah and I lived in California, we lived in an apartment complex I've told you about. I have fond memories of that place, and some scary memories too. It was called the Californian. Um, Not the Hotel California, even though it was in California. There were 42 people in that, and and some people were transient. They would move in and out, in and out. And there was one guy that was there, and his name was Andy. And this was one of the largest human beings I've ever seen. He he had to be seven seven feet tall, and he smoked cigars. And he just scared me. I'm just being honest. I mean, I'm a man. I'm a redneck. I'm from Arkansas. Not a lot scares me. This guy intimidated me, man. I don't know why. He would roll his cigar. He would lean on the balcony. He lived just within eye shot of me. When I walked out our front door, <laughs> I would walk out our front door, I would look across the balcony, and Andy, the six, seven-foot giant, would be there rolling a cigar in the darkness when his eyes would look red and he'd be glowing like looking at me. I would walk out my door and be like, ah, it's Andy. 
Well, this guy was tough. He was hard, and I could tell he had a rough life. He just had, he had it written all over him. I've had a rough life, dude. Stay out of my way. One of those people. You know what I mean? So I'm a seminary guy. I'm pale. I'm, you know, I'm, I look like I live in, in the basement of my mom, and I'm always reading and weak and overweight during that time in my life. And, I, you know, I would just kind of ignore Andy. Definitely didn't see him myself as a debtor to him, which that's terrible. I'm in seminary, and I'm like, yeah, get out of my way, Andy. Your smoke's annoying me. That's the way I viewed him. So one night, I, you know, wanted to get some fresh air, and I go out my front door, and it's Andy. And he's sitting over there rolling a cigar. I asked my wife. I'm not embellishing. I know pastors embellish stories. This is true. Andy's sitting there rolling that cigar, and he goes, hey. And I'm like, ah. And he said, hey, you. And I'm like, I'm like, you mean my wife? <laughs> no, he said, you, come over here. And he, he, I don't know if he was Italian or he said, come over here. And I was like, <clears throat> yes, sir. <clears throat> so I go down the steps. My heart is about to beat out of my chest. I go down these steps across the courtyard up there. I'm thinking in my mind, what man, trying to remember Bruce Lee movies I've seen, you know, I don't know. So Andy's leaning against his balcony there, and I go up there, and there's these huge crocodile tears coming down his face. He said, you're in, he said, you're in seminary, aren't you? And I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, I see your, your wife over there, and your kids, and you're always happy and smiling. And he said, you got it all together, don't you? And I'm like, no, no, man, I don't have it all together. My, I got homework to do, my homework. <laughs> I'm thinking these little trivial problems, you know. And he said, man, he said, my life... It's an absolute mess. He said, it's a mess. He said, I don't even want to live anymore. He said, I don't even know why I'm here, man. And he said, can you help me? And I was like, dang. And he said, I've been to AA 12 times, bro. He said, 12 times. He said, and this is the last time. He said, just last night, I messed up, fell off the wagon again. He said, I've tried to kill myself a couple of times. My daughter and I have an estranged relationship. I'm hooked on... Um, Oxycons. I mean, he just, all this stuff just, just, I guess he thought of me as a priest in a way, just pouring out of him. He said, can you help me, man? Can you help me stay sober? Can you help me get my daughter back? Can you help me get off these pills? And I looked at him and I said, Andy, I can't, man. I can't. I, ca I cannot help you, man. I can't help you stay sober or get sober. I can't help you resist the overpowering urge to drink alcohol when you're sad because you're sad all the time. I can't pretend to know the power of a narcotic like Oxycont, and I don't know the nature of your estranged relationship with your daughter. So no, I can't help you manage your problems. But I, but, but I know somebody, Andy. <laughs> I said, I know somebody, buddy, that can help you eliminate some of those problems, man. Are you interested to know more about it? And it was at that moment that I was just really happy. I was really excited because I got to be honest. I don't know why, but up until that point, most of the time in my Christian life, when I met somebody like that, this is the way I thought, and maybe you do too sometimes. I thought, I got to help this guy get, get off of alcohol. And, and now look, I'm not saying there's not steps we take in that direction. Accountability, phone calls, I'll pick you up, call me, that kind of thing, definitely. But I would see myself as the problem solver. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I got to help this guy. I got to work up this power, and I'm the answer. I'm the solution. Andy, you met the right guy, dude. You met the right guy, because I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. Uh, you know, I'm going to do all this. But, but guys, there's no power in that. That's, surface, that's communication stuff. See, I know somebody that can change Andy's heart, because that's, that's what the Apostle Paul says. See, Andy is an unrighteous man, and he desperately needs the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Paul says here, if I'm reading it right, that the gospel, what's it say here? 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed and available and offered. Andy, you need righteousness. That's what you need, bro. And that righteousness, that power from God is going to change your life, man, and transform you. Because your want-tos need to change. I can't change your want-tos. Let me, let me explain it this way. Um, I said this last week and joking a little bit. When is a thief no longer a thief? Most people would say when he quits stealing, but that's not the right answer. It's when the thief becomes honest. And he's a productive member of society who contributes and works hard and gets a paycheck, right? Something has to change, not just uh, him stealing things. And it's the same with lying. When is a liar no longer a liar? When you cut his tongue out and he can't talk? No. Something has to change. Honesty has to come into play. It's the same thing with pride. How can a vain person who's proud and thinks only of themselves be changed? Can you just tell them, and I'm tempted to do this in parenting. This is a good little... Good little plug for gospel-centered parenting here, okay? The only thing that has the power to change and transform your children is the gospel. I'm a firm believer in discipline. I've received it, and I've delivered it, okay? And that's helpful at some level, but discipline doesn't change people's hearts, okay? Discipline certainly provides opportunities to share the message that changes people's hearts with your kids. I can yell at my kids, and I do sometimes. My kids are in here. Don't say amen, kids. (laughs) I do. I get angry. I lose my temper, Uh, But yelling at my kids and telling them to get in bed and shut up and be quiet and let me watch my Netflix, that's not going to change their heart, right? What's going to change their heart is the life-changing message of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That's the power. James Denny said this about the cross. He said, it's the hiding place of God's power and the inspiration for all Christian praise. And man, I'm going over again. Why am I doing this, guys? Last point. I'm, I'm ending now, okay? Last point. Uh, oh, yeah. I got I to gotta get this in. because tomorrow. What's tomorrow? It's Martin Luther King Day, right? And how much has God used this man uh, to remind us the power of love? And that's what the gospel really is about. It's vertical, one-way, unconditional, covenantal love from God to us. And you know what happens when that takes root in your heart, it flows out to others. Look what Martin Luther King said. He said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And I think Martin Luther King would say he meant that vertical as well as horizontal. Because what he didn't do is the same thing his enemies did, hate back. He showered them with love. He even said this once. He said, I'm going to wear them down with love. And he did. And he said this too, love is the most durable power in the world. Amen. And the gospel is filled with God's love for us and Jesus. Here's another one I like. I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Amen. And I thank God for Dr. Martin Luther King and his legacy and what God has accomplished in our nation through him being a pioneer and a front runner in civil rights. So here's the third message. We must view unbelievers as under divine wrath. So we view ourselves as debtors, right? We view our message as under divine power. And then we view our audience as under divine wrath. And man, we've talked about that a little. I'm not going to, I really am closing. Last page, I promise. See, Um, the way you view an unbeliever has a remarkable effect on your capacity to extend compassion. It really does. Um, This says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God's wrath, that word wrath, it's orge. It means settled, abiding, It's not that God's just angry, he flies off the handle, he loses his temper, he's uncontrollable. No, this is a controlled and a righteous anger toward people everywhere who have suppressed the truth. God has revealed truth about himself in creation, in nature, and in the Bible. 
And men and women everywhere have suppressed it. We've held it down. We've tried to silence it, to mute it. And that has provoked God's wrath and His anger. And so, if you view your audience not as an annoyance, not as freaks and perverts and people to be annihilated, like that pastor in the beginning introduction said, no, you see them in grave danger. That will change the way that you present the message to them and interact with them. On March the 30th, 1981, John Hinckley Jr. attempted to assassinate one of the most conservative presidents in the history of our nation, Ronald Reagan. The assassin's bullet entered Reagan under his left armpit and lodged into his lung and stopped about one inch from his heart. And if you remember the story, Reagan, um, he got in the car, he was waving to people, you know, he didn't want to even let on that he had been hit. I think the bullet ricocheted off the limousine he was in that was bulletproof and, and entered under his arm. Nobody even knew he was hit until Reagan collapsed on the way away from the, uh, from the scene and they had to divert and go to the hospital. And that was where he was rushed into surgery, where the head surgeon, Joseph uh, Giordano, I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He was a registered liberal Democrat. Okay, that's important. Reagan, the most conservative president in the history of the United States, registered Republican. And he finds himself about to go under the knife of a far-left registered liberal Democrat. Upon being moved from the gurney to the operating table, Reagan, and if you know much about Ronald Reagan, you can appreciate his humor, he took off his oxygen mask, he looked up at the doctor, and he said, I hope you're a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what the doctor said? He said, Mr. President, today we are all Republicans. And man, that's the way we have to view unbelievers, right? Not all Republicans. (laughs) Make sure you get this right. It's we're, hey, we're all, they're all in danger, right? They're all in danger. They're all under the wrath of God. They need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You have a powerful message that has been entrusted to you to share, and you are their debtor, and you owe it to them. So to withhold payment um, is to commit a grave sin against the unbeliever and against the Lord. And listen... I want us to live on mission here. And that begins with having the right perspective about those three things. And there's more to come in the next three messages.